Oh, well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you again for being here this morning. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. You've reached us to the last part of our series called Power, Part 9 of 9. It's been a privilege to walk with you through a teaching that Jesus gave that in the Bible is called the Sermon on the Mount that he gave to people who were interested in learning more about who he is and what he teaches that was on the mount, on the mountainside. Now, this morning, as we finish it up, I want to take you back to the beginning of my week. It was Monday. It was a memorial day. Many of you had the day off. I took the day off and had some time with the family, and on that day, I decided that I would take my son to see a movie on Monday and decided to go see Star Wars. So you can put me in whatever box you want to with that. We had a good time. And when you go to see a movie these days, by the way, uh, this has changed over the years, but to go to a movie, you actually apparently need to reserve a seat in the movie theater, and they all now apparently recline, at least the good ones, you know, recline with other seats. So I I go online, I make a reservation for two people uh, for a movie. And there happens to be a section of three available seats in which I say, aha, this is good, I'll take two of the three because it's most likely that there won't be a third one come because who, who comes to the movies by themselves, right? So I get to the movies with Luke and we're there and the, trail, the, the previews for the other movies are starting to play and in comes, in comes somebody who sits next to me and immediately takes over the shared armrest with the coat, kicks back with a full thing of popcorn, and, and is really just like full-on engaged with the popcorn. Like you can hear the popcorn being eaten and all that kind of stuff, which is great. And leans over to me in a not-so-quiet voice in the movie theater says, Hey, what time does the movie end? I'm thinking to myself, well, I've never seen it before, which is why I'm here, and I don't know when it ends. I mean, we're all kind of seeing I'm like, I don't know when it ends, actually. I'm not sure. Okay, and then he asks the next guy, when does it end? I don't know. Throughout the course of the movie, what I learned, his default reaction to anything dramatic was to cuss out loud. That's true. About a, a dozen different times through the movie, I learned that there are different curse words for different moments in the movie. Like, just blurted out loud, and he genuinely was surprised and genuinely was engaged in the movie and loved it. But instead of, like, I might be like, whoa, he would just cuss in that space. It was just strange, and it was loud in the movie. Like, there wasn't a sense of an inside voice on that moment at all. So throughout the movie, there's this, like, secondary narrative going on next to me with this guy who's just cussing at all the dramatic moments in the movie. And it was rather interesting. And then three-quarters of the way through the movie, he leans over and says... I have to go to the bathroom, save my seat. (laughs) To which I'm like, we all saved our seats online, like before you got here. This was a reserve. And there's been no one who's entered the movie theater for the last 90 minutes to take anyone's, but yeah, I got it. I'll save your seat. So he goes to the bathroom, comes back. And if you miss part of the movie, what do you need to do when you come back? What happened? Well, I was gone. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to talk to you through the... I'm like, nothing, really. (laughs) Were they just in the ship? I'm like, yep, they were just in the ship. All right, good. You know, we're back, engaged with the movie. It was a great time. I don't know what happened in the movie, but I had more fun with the guy next to me than anything else. I'm sure he was a great guy, but it created this really interesting sense in me, and I thought throughout the movie, how bad does this have to get? Like, I thought, boy, these poor movie theater managers, I'm sure that they have people who, they, who complain about things like this and who may come out and ask for something or may even walk out of the movie or whatever. I thought, how bad does it have to get? And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know how bad this is going to get, so how bad does it have to get for me to want to change my situation, <laughs> to walk out and ask for help? I, d- I didn't know how bad things were going to get there at all, and that's about how bad they got, and they were fine, and it was a low-level pain that I put up with for a higher 
higher level reward, if you will, the low level pain of that strangeness and difficulty and awkwardness in the moment for the higher level reward of, like, I don't want to miss the movie that I'm now engaged in. And that principle is something we all follow and do all the time, isn't it? We're willing to put up with low-level pain for higher-level rewards. And whether that's exercise and the low-level pain of running and what it does to your body for the higher-level reward of feeling better or getting in shape, or it's the low-level reward of uh, low-level pain of you know, going to school and turning in papers on time with a higher-level reward of actually getting a degree and developing a career. Maybe it's the low-level pain of customers who, who are paying customers, but they're just a low-level pain. But you put up with them for the higher-level reward of actually getting paid. Or maybe it's a boss, same thing. Like, it's just not working right, but you know what? I have a job. We all do this, and we all do this all the time. Low-level pain we can put up with for a higher-level reward. The problem comes when the low-level goes from low-level the high level, and the customer is no longer worth being put up with, or the movie is no longer worth being set in in that space, or the exercise causes some kind of serious pain, or the relationship goes from a low level to a high level pain that's no longer worth being in, and we'll abandon, we'll move, we'll change, we'll do something different. And in those times, when pain goes from low to high, are often the times for you and for me when I will seek God in a, in a fresh and deep way. When the pain goes from more than just superficial, like someone sitting in a movie theater next to me doing this kind of thing, when it goes to a deeper level pain, when I experience a relational struggle or strain, or when I'm going through real disillusionment and struggle with my career or my future or discouragement, where am I going and what am I doing? Am I making a difference? And the pain kind of gets turned up. I'll often, and you probably do too, turn to God for support and encouragement and help, turn to my faith. But what happens? What happens when the pain comes because you're following God. What happens when the pain that you experience and the pain that I experience comes not in spite of your faith or not outside of your faith, but what happens when pain that you experience comes actually because you're following God? That your pursuit of God leads to things that have negative consequences in your life where people will look to you, look sideways at you, eliminate opportunities because of your faith. And your faith actually creates less opportunities, less hope, less of a future, even what some might call persecution. What do you do when because of your faith, the pain meter gets turned up? And what I want to talk about this morning, I'm glad you're here, I'm glad you're listening later if you're listening later online is a part of our faith that we don't always talk about because it isn't always brought up. And it's kind of in the fine print. And Jesus wants to be clear for people who follow him that this isn't in the fine print. He wants to put the fine print at the very beginning and at the very front, that if you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be low-level to high-level pain that comes as a part of that journey. And the mistake that we often make, just because we think of faith as providing answers and providing encouragement and providing hope, and it does all of that, we often, when faith actually creates trouble, it creates hardship, it creates what I'm going to call persecution, when it does that, I have known people, and you probably have too, who have walked from the faith at that point, because that's not what the faith is supposed to bring. That's not what God is supposed to bring, right? That's not what the hope of the resurrection in Jesus is supposed to bring, right? Isn't he supposed to bring hope, mercy, and grace? But what about when our faith doesn't? And basically, I want to say this, that Jesus' followers may have to put up with 
low-level pain for higher-level rewards. It's as simple as that. And Jesus is pretty clear with that. And so I want to go with you in the Gospel of Matthew, where we've been, to finish our teaching that he delivers to us. If you have a Bible with you, there's a, there's, um, we're, we're in the first Gospel, the first letter in the New Testament called Matthew. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There's one in the pew around you there, and that's our gift to you if you don't own one. But Matthew 5 is the first letter in the New Testament, and a guy named Matthew wrote it. And in chapter 5, we've been in verses 1 through 10. We're gonna, I'm just going to read from verses 10 to 12 this morning. But Jesus has given already this, we'll call it a speech, a talk, a message, a sermon, whatever you want to call it. Um, and in this, he's talked about things like, you know, blessed are the merciful, you know, um, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed, last week we looked at blessed are the peacemakers, and he said a lot of good things, a lot of high-value, noble things, characteristics that are good for people with integrity and people of faith. But he ends poorly. <laughs> he, he ends badly. If you're talking to someone who's a writer or an editor or someone who's trying to finish a story well, like, this isn't a good ending, Jesus. Like, your ending kind of is a downer for everybody. And look what he says in verse 10. As he finishes this part of blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, in the Greek, that's a word called makarios. And over and over again, he says makarios, makarios, makarios. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on in verse 11 to flesh it out a little bit. He says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is strange. This is a strange place to put this, but I think what Jesus is trying to do is take the fine print from the bottom of the contract and put it up before you sign it and say, before you sign on to this new mortgage that you're having, before you sign on to this new agreement, before you sign on with the team, I just want you to know there is a fine print here at the bottom, and please don't be surprised. And here's what it is. If you sign on to this, things will not always go well for you. And this faith is not always designed to deliver something awesome for you. In fact, this faith may deliver more hardship to you than what you ha- even have right now. And that is strange. And I think what Jesus is trying to do for people who are listening to him is say, listen, if you actually do these things, if you're a peacemaker, if you're someone who is merciful, if you're pure in heart, you're honestly, you're going to get people upset around you. Your integrity, your conscience as a business partner will bother the partner that you're working with who doesn't share the same values and they're going to get upset with you and they're going to cut you out of what happens in your business and you will lose profit. You're going to have bosses who are going to look at you and ask why you won't go along with what's happening in the business, and you're going to lose the opportunity to advance, potentially lose your job. You're going to have people, depending on what part of the world you live in, who are in power politically, who are going to look at your faith and say, we actually don't want your kind here, and Christians like you are the reason for all the problems in the world today, and we're going to persecute you, not in spite of, but because of the faith that you have signed on to. And what Jesus is trying to do is kind of give a heads up to everybody. If you're going to sign on for this team, if you're going to do these things, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. By the way, blessed are, and let me finish it with, the persecuted. (laughs) Because that's what you're going to be, unless you choose to live as a hermit somewhere, if you choose to engage in society, your values, your integrity, the things that you choose to do and react, react to, will create hardship for you. It's strange. If you think about persecution, what does it even mean? I want to put it this way. We're persecuted, I think, understood this way. When, basically, when doing what's right in God's kingdom results in real 
real-world negative consequences now. It's as simple as I can get it. The persecution is simply that, that we're persecuted that way. When doing what's right in God's kingdom results in real-world negative consequences now. I want to flesh that out a little bit later on. But look at Jesus fleshes it out himself in verse 11. You think about what does it mean to be persecuted. Look at verse 11. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, all right? Insult you. Ever been insulted? You ever because of the faith? Ever been made fun of because of the faith? Persecute you. And this idea of persecution carries kind of a systematic, organized, planned persecution. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you. You ever been lied about, have a false story told about you because of me? And then he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this persecution, you see in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, it's because of righteousness, because you're making the choice to do the right thing in God's eyes. And that is the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking to. And then he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse, at the end of verse 10. In other words, that the rule and the reign of God, the way things are supposed to be, life that is truly life, is experienced when you go through persecution because you've been choosing to do the right things. Now, why is this here? Why would Jesus drop this at the end of his teaching on blessed are, blessed are, blessed are? Like, why not start with that and end with blessed are the merciful? Why not end with blessed are the peacemakers? Why do you have to end this way, Jesus? Of all the ways that you can end, why do you end this way? And I do believe it's because he wants people to understand. When you sign on, this is what you are signing on for. In fact, he does the same thing later in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to read it for you. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 to 22, here's what Jesus says to people who are following him. He says to them, be on your guard against men. Now he's talking to people who've come who say, like, I want to follow you and give you my life. He says, be on your guard, for they will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, when they arrest you, not if, but when they, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Then he says, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. Now, time to sign on. I mean, who would ever sign on to that for a marketing pitch? You ever try to recruit employees with that? By the way, here's all the bad things that could happen to you, actually will happen to you if you come to work for us. You're going to prison, you're going to be flogged, we're not going to tell you what to say until the very last minute, and everyone is going to hate you because you work here. All right, but there is a small signing bonus. And then in Matthew 24, he says the same thing again, just to be clear, verses 9 to 12 there. I'm just going to read that for you here. He says, then you'll be handed over, talking to the same people who are interested in following him, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. (laughs) Again, like... Mr. Negative Jesus here this morning. He's just straight up telling you, this is the fine print of following you. This is part of the quote-unquote contract, if you will. If you're going to sign on to the team, I want you to know. If you're going to be a peacemaker, if you're going to be interested in doing the right things, there are going to be people around you who are actually going to hate you for that. And it's going to be normal. And I think he's just simply trying to normalize it so that when things get hard in your life and your faith and mine, that we will not walk from the faith that we sign on to because we do not sign on to faith, do we? Because it will all be awesome. 
And we do not sign on to faith, do we? Because it will be more financially beneficial to us if we do that in our area, right? We sign on to faith because of the cross and because of what Jesus has done. That is what our faith holds to. I had to ask the question, we talked about this as a staff this week as we were processing this teaching, this idea. I asked the question, does this even happen today? We have to ask that if we're living here in North America. Um, as we think about persecution, that word, we rarely use that around here, do we? Like, in fact, it feels pretty foreign because we often think of persecution as an international problem, but certainly not a North American problem. Rarely do we see and hear in North America of beatings, tortures, imprisonments, death because of the following of the Christian faith. And therefore, this teaching can kind of sound a little bit hollow. And I will say that the, the word itself in the Greek can mean both an organized, systemic persecution, and it can also mean, just frankly, being mean to somebody. Okay, So we're going to talk about both of those. But because I didn't know the answer to the question, maybe you know it easier than I do, but I didn't know, like, does this happen in North America today? How should I understand this here in the U.S. today? Does this happen uh, where we live? I asked, who would you ask if you don't know the answer? Not Siri, but Google, absolutely. So I Googled it. I'm like, I don't know, let's see what Google has to say. And it was interesting to read. And of course, I got all kinds of answers online about what's happening in persecution around the world. But one lady uh, wrote in the Washington Post, Bethany Allen Ibrahimian wrote uh, in, uh, in an article in December 2017. Basically, she's saying no. So I got three answers. I got no, it doesn't happen. I got kind of, and I got yes. All right, that's what I got. I got no, kind of, and yes. And here's what she says for no. She said, no, like, come on, get over it. She said, stop, if you're a Christian, please stop claiming that you're being persecuted in North America today. Just stop it. She says, Christians are overrepresented in Congress. About 90% claim some kind of Christian faith, whatever branch that might be. And the general population, she would say, about 70% claim some kind of Christian faith. Now, we know that it's more nuanced than that. There's all kinds of people in different areas. But her point was, by definition, the weaker party... Um, is not oppressed by the more powerful party. Like, because Christians are in power, basically, no, you are not oppressed, get over it, deal with it, no, 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 stop it. That was her point, okay? Is that strong enough? Okay, that was basically the strength of her article. Then in the middle, Relevant Magazine, Gospel Coalition, they, they basically said, listen, sort of, like kind of, yes, because there's things that are going on in our, in our culture, in our world, kind of, maybe, yes, but be savvy and be aware that, and I, I put it this way, when you walk into the ER and you have a headache, you don't make a big deal out of it as a person who walked in is missing an arm, right? Like, you're sensitive to the reality that the persecution and the struggle and the kind of pain that we're dealing with here is probably a little bit different than what's happening around the world. But it would be wrong not to report the headache. It would be wrong to pretend I don't have that because that could lead to something more significant. It would be a miss to not see this is going on. So we'll talk about that. But then there's people over here who are like, yes, absolutely. In fact, I've read several, um, several articles about people who are international um, leaders in the church who are persecuted for a variety of reasons, and one of whom says basically that um, the difference of the persecution in the church in North America is that it's silent, and it's really centered around comfort and the relentless pursuit of comfort that dulls the edge of their faith and silently, quietly kills the passion for what the church started for in the first place. And that is a persecution of another order, they said. Now, with that being said, you also realize that the church is bigger than the U.S., right? The church is bigger than the U.S. The church is bigger than even our current generation. And I realize that I have books on my shelf from my time in college and seminary, people who I've read about, and I'm like, you know, I need a refresher. I need a reminder. I went back and I read 
one of the books from Ruth Tucker, a book called From Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya. It's a long book. Um, but she told the story in there of a woman named Betty Olson. It was very profound when I read it years ago and very profound again as I reread it here in preparation for this morning. And Betty, you won't probably know her story. I would be surprised if anyone knew Betty. I didn't know Betty until I read this little thing. But Betty was born in the 1940s in Africa, early 1940s. Uh, her parents are missionaries, and her dad was um, very involved in ministry to the point where he was gone from the home for weeks at a time. And that developed in Betty a sense of disconnect and dissonance and loss of relationship with dad to the point where she really struggled with her own identity and sense of security. And so Betty grew up kind of wanting and never having this relationship with dad and this confidence in who she is. So she ended up coming to high school in North America. And as she came to high school, um, she decided that she wanted to go back to Africa where dad was and reconnect in a relationship with him because mom had passed. And so she goes back to Africa. But in that space, the dad was getting remarried, and so she never quite got the reconnection with dad that she was expecting. And so a couple of years went by, and she decided to come back to the North America and come back here to go to college. And went to Nyack College in New York, School of Missions, to train to be a nurse, uh, to take basically medical missions around the world. And as she was finishing, she desperately wanted to get married because she didn't feel that she could stand on her own. And that period of time in our history um, as a single woman missionary. She felt like she needed to be married to legitimize herself as a missionary. I'm not saying she was right, that's just the way that she felt. And so she, she tried dating and it didn't work. A number of failed dating opportunities. And finally she decided with a little bit of frustration to head back to Africa after she finished college. And when she went back to Africa on the mission field, basically she was so upset and disappointed and frustrated that she carried her bitterness with her uh, there. And on the mission field, believe it or not, she was kicked out of the very field in which her parents started and were engaged in there after just a couple of years. When she was at the age of 29, she found herself in Chicago and was so much at the bottom of her life that she was about ready to take her own life. And she's a college grad, ready to do missions, but rejected and feeling so much of a great struggle. She finally met a counselor who helped her, connected with her, and over the course of time, she was able to kind of reconnect and, and reconnect to faith and ended up going overseas. She went to Vietnam, of all places. She went to Vietnam, uh, to a small town there called Ban Matu, Ban Matu in Vietnam. And it just so happened that she went to Vietnam over the time of, if you're tracking the timeline here, of the Vietnam War. And so Betty Olson um, was in this little town of Ban Matu on January 30th of 1968 when the Viet Cong came into that city and into the mission compound where she was and where the other missionaries were. And she was dispensing medicine and helping the locals, just doing medical missions work. They killed five of the missionaries there and they took Betty and Hank Blood and another guy, an American aid worker who is not a believer, but just an American aid worker named Mike Benj. They took all three of them captive. For the next eight to 12 months, they marched them through the jungles of Vietnam relentlessly. Betty um, ended up, as they all did, marching about 12 to 14 hours a day, sustained only by meager rations of rice, which we later on learned that she would hold back some of her rice for the other captives who were local Vietnamese who didn't get as much as the privileged Americans got. They got dengue fever. They pleaded for medicine, but they were ignored. They got parasitic skin diseases on them. She had dozens of leeches clinging to her legs as she was marched through the the forests in Vietnam, through the jungles in Vietnam, because she was wearing the same dress that she was captured in January 30th for months on end. Beaten when she would fall and beaten when she would 
not able to continue and pleaded just to die in the jungles and were told, no, not going to happen. For both her and Hank, things got so bad that for Hank, a middle-aged man who was pretty um, sedentary in his lifestyle, he ended up dying just from the fatigue and the exhaustion of all of this. But for Betty and um, the other guy, Mike, over the period of time, over about eight months, their hair turned... um, their hair turned gray, they lost all their body hair, their nails stopped growing, and their teeth were bleeding because their gums were so loose, all signs of malnutrition. And here's Betty Olson sitting in the, the camp, um, unable to really walk, legs swollen and um, beaten down, suffering from dysentery, which caused diarrhea. She became so weak that she ended up being unable to move out of her own hammock and lying in her own defecation for days on end until she finally died at the age of 35. Mike survived by being reallocated and re- sent over to a POW camp and for two years spent about two years in solitary confinement. And Mike, who wasn't a believer in Jesus, the lone survivor of this whole ordeal is where we get our information about what happened to Betty and the trouble and the struggle that she went through. And here's what Mike said about her. He said, of, of this person who, Betty, who was once the most rebellious and bitter young woman angry about what God wasn't allowing her to do, and Mike's words became the most unselfish person he had ever known. In fact, he said this about her. He said, she never showed, hold on, let me get it back to you. (laughs) She never showed any bitterness or resentment. To the end, she loved the ones who mistreated her. Mike, who wasn't a believer before, put his faith in Christ because of Betty and how she interacted with her captors around her. The story of Betty is told over and over and over again in countless nameless people's lives who have been persecuted for real, quote-unquote, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are the persecuted, Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Betty gives us a picture of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That out of weakness, with nothing left to give, all she gives is herself. All she gives is the love that she has, even to those enemies of hers. That is the power of the kingdom of heaven. That is a life-changing power when all other human power is stripped from you and from me. And Betty's story is the story of the church. It is the story of a church that through generation upon generation upon generation has had this thread of courage and love and service to people just woven through it. Our story in the church is woven together because of people like Betty and countless others who have died in similar situations whose stories we will never know. But Jesus says from the jump, if you come on this team, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, because theirs, it's a kingdom of heaven. It's what it's about. You give a picture of love in the hardest spaces. And here's what I've learned over the time, a little bit of time about persecution, about struggle, about hardship. Persecution strips away the things which prop up our faith. I have friends who have walked away from the faith, and you may have too, and part of the reason they walk away from the faith is because things get really hard, and the things that have propped up their faith are stripped away. And by that I mean, for for some of them, it's been like, 
they believe and believe and they come to church, they do the Christian routines because honestly, it's better for them socially. They won't get kicked out of their family. Their business will be more successful because they'll have more Christian clients. People will respect them more because they'll be in the quote-unquote in crowd. And all of these things prop up a weak faith that's actually built on all these other things going well. And then when these things don't go well, it's like, whoa, well, is it worth it anymore? No, it's not worth it anymore because that was never what faith was about. Persecution is that gift that kind of strips away the things which prop up our faith and point us back to, listen, we got into this not because it was going to be awesome, but because of Jesus, because of the cross of Christ. That's why we're in, not because he promised that everything will be great. Well, I also say this, that the edge of our faith is our international brothers and sisters will tell us can be worn down in times of ease, can be worn down by the relentless pursuit of comfort. We have to remember this reality that our founder was crucified. We know that in our head, but listen, our founder was crucified. Think about that. We worship our founder whose life didn't end well on this planet. I mean, yes, he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. I get all that. But listen, his, his earthly life, he didn't want to go through what he went through, but that's who we worship. There was a Chinese church leader who spent 23 years in prison. He said this. He said, I was pushed into a cell, but you have to push yourself into one. You have no time to know God. You need to build yourself a cell so you can do for yourself what persecution did for me. Simplify your life and know God. Very interesting perspective from our international brothers and sisters. Now, finally, I'll say this. The church is built on Jesus' resurrection and not on morality. And the reason I say this is because there are times that we have to be careful as a church, and I see it as a subtle but important thing that we need to discuss on this point. There are some times when people, when people are persecuted, or if you're on the winning team and you're persecuted for that, when, when there's persecution, people just say, listen, oh, that's because we're doing the right thing. Like, yeah, we're doing the right thing. People can persecute us if they want to, but there almost becomes an elitism or a pride in doing the quote-unquote right moral thing. So I can put it this way. Um, the shadow that attends morality is the shadow of elitism. The shadow that comes with believing that Christianity is a package of morality, a package of ethics, and that's what should be put on in your life and put on in mine. Be right. Be good. The shadow that that casts is a shadow of elitism, a shadow of separation, a shadow of we are better than you. And persecution, instead of turning us to love those who are persecuting us, can turn our hearts to pride and arrogance to say, yeah, there's a reason I'm being persecuted. It's because I'm doing the right thing. It's because we're doing the right thing. And that smacks of everything that Jesus was against. And I just want to speak to that. We are we're not saved because we're moral or because we're ethical. And I'm all for that, by the way. Like, I'd prefer that no one here sleep around because I don't think it's a great idea. I'd prefer here that no one is hooked on drugs or alcohol because I don't think that's a great idea. I'd prefer that we're not cussing in movie theaters because I don't think that's a great idea either. But listen, none of that is why, none of that is what saves us, right? Like, none of that is what this is really about, Right? Christianity, the basic at the heart of it, is about a Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross. And so we don't come to faith because of ethics. We don't come to faith because of morality. And we don't hold that over anybody else. We come to faith because there was a man, a God-man, who came and died on the cross. That is what we hang our hats on. And so when things get hard for you, and this is what I want for you, when things get hard for you, when you have people in school who are looking at you funny, they're asking you, why don't you play that video game? 
Why don't you laugh at the jokes that are being told? When you have the people who work with you and they know that you aren't doing the things that other people are doing, and when you have people at work who aren't giving you opportunities, when you have people who are rejected, who are pushed back, when you experience even just the lightness of someone being mean to you, or the heaviness of what some of our brothers and sisters of the faith have experienced, I don't want you to walk away from something that was already told was going to happen for you and for me. And Jesus is pretty clear. The persecution... It's a part of the package. And it develops in us something rich and deep that while I may not prefer, is a part of refining us and keeping us focused that we are not here because it's going to be awesome. We are here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of the resurrection of who he is. Now, we have the opportunity this morning to celebrate that very thing. About six times a year at GPC, we do communion. And when we share in communion together, we have the opportunity to come back around the cross, to come back around and remember who Jesus was and what it is that we are actually doing. So as the communion ushers and the worship team come forward now to take their spots as they're coming forward, as you kind of get your heart and your mind around this communion element, this communion space, I want to tell you what we're going to do.